I'm Sally Ann from Map the Maze. I'm Patricia Falchetta from Social Living Solutions. Together we speak about nurturing neurodiversity. All the ways we can create a truly inclusive society. We aim to educate, inspire and create social change. Through sharing stories, experiences and research, we challenge current systems and open dialogue on what we can all do to create change. We hope you will join us on our journey. Welcome here today. I think today's going to be a really, really great topic because I think we've been talking a lot about some practical things and some, you know, and some concept things, but this is the big one, right? This is the whole reason we're here. We're talking about what is neurodiversity. So we're actually going to dive into the whole concept of it. Um, and I suppose why we both subscribe to that concept as opposed to autism spectrum disorder. Mm. Mm. Have you got any initial yeah. thoughts, Patricia, that you'd like to share? Yeah, no, 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 that's beautiful. Yeah, that's perfect, Sammy. I think that, yeah, that's exactly right. That's what we're going to be able to, that's what we're going to be talking today. And I think the spectrum or the girth that you like that is neurodiversity and what that means and where it falls, where it falls under. So, yeah, so let me start today by welcoming everyone that is watching and saying welcome to Nurturing Neurodiversity and I'll introduce myself and let you introduce yourself. So my name is Patricia Falchetta and I reside in Canberra and my business is called Social Living Solutions. And amongst other things that I do in my business, uh, one of my main focuses is working with families and parents and helping them to embrace that neurodiversity once you um, get that diagnosis and learning how to move forward positively with that diagnosis. So my title is the Family Joy Expert. So I work with families really working towards that joy, that acceptance of neurodiversity and getting a, parents and children getting a better understanding of it and all the positives that come with being neurodiverse. And that's because, as Sammy and I, Anne and I talk about a lot, the diagnostic process is very heavily deficit-based and so it's focused on what you, if you're the adult that's been diagnosed or your child that's the one being diagnosed can't do. And what my work in is, is very strength-focused and, um, and positive-based focus where we really, really focus on the positives and learn how to move forward with that diagnosis and just make really easy everyday after adaptations that make the neurodiverse person's life easier in a world that's um i guess heavily based um to to not make it easy for neurodiverse people mm. isn't it mm. so yeah, we definitely that. we're definitely structured in a you know mm. we're a neurotypical society that yeah. you know sees everything through that lens and then anything outside of that can be really difficult to you know to function a lot of the time because we just we just haven't really considered anyone else's perspective at this point of time and I think that's changing mm. I think you know and part of what we do is really wanting to change that and and you know mm. move towards a more inclusive society um so on that note I'm Sammy Ann from Map the Maze I my work is very similar to Patricia's in that I think that we try to balance out the you know the existing system that we have which as you said is really negative and deficit based we really try to support families to reframe what's happening and actually just connect with their individual children um, a big passion of mine is really supporting families through that diagnosis process because it can be quite traumatic because of the way that the system is structured right now. Um, mm. And so I really like to, you know, to support families through that to make sure that at, while we're still, you know, ticking the boxes and, and playing that game of, of doing the diagnosis part, we also are, you know, remembering to, you know, look at the strengths and look at the interests of the child and actually connect with our individual child and look at what we can Absolutely. be doing in the meantime, right, at home, because there's a lot of that information yeah. doesn't come until after. What we can no. be doing at home to actually, um, you know, bring back more of that positive, because when you're on, only focusing on the negative, you only will often see the negative. Whereas if we can be focusing on the positive while, you know, recognising and understanding that there are difficulties going on as well, if we're focusing on the positive, we're going to see more of that. And so, yeah. you know, that's what we're really passionate about and that's what we, you know, do in our work. Um, and I also, you know, and I will help people beyond the diagnosis as well in terms of what, what's the next direction is connecting with therapies that are, um, you know, positive and, and appropriate for your situation. And even things like making education decisions about whether, you know, whether a mainstream school is right, whether um, a specialist school is right, whether homeschooling is right. There's lots of different options mm. rather than just sending them to the local school, right? That we have lots of education options and we're very lucky in that way in this country. 
Um, but yeah, working out a family navigating that can be very difficult to work out what's actually the best option for them. So I definitely support in that area as well. So that is us. On that note, let's dive a little bit deeper into this topic. I think it's it's hard to talk about neurodiversity without also talking about the fact that we exist at the moment within a medical model of autism. Mm. So when people use the term autism spectrum disorder, generally, whether consciously or not, because like even just a few months ago, I was probably using this term because this is the, the, this is the label right that we're given in our system. Um, autism spectrum disorder is what is representative of the medical model of autism, which is basically a, a list of symptoms, right? A list, a list of, you know, generally observable um, behaviours that we often see. And a lot of the testing and, you know, assessment tools around the actual diagnosis of autism is related to observable behaviours. Mm. Less about, you know, what the person themselves are, you know, how they're experiencing the world or how they're viewing the world, actually just about from the outside, what are we seeing? Which again... Yeah. It was all set up and, and developed from a, from a neurotypical lens and looking at, you know, how is the child different from what we would typically see? How is the child, you know, um, not coping with, you know, situations and um, I suppose experiences where we would expect a normal child to cope? Yeah. Normal and what is coping anyway, but that's besides the point. Um, I actually brought up, I might have a quick look at it now. Um, oh no, it's not going to let me. There's, um, if you Google DSM-5 and autism spectrum disorder, it will actually bring up the lists of behaviours that's in there. So it's quite specific in terms of, um, you know, the levels that you have to meet. But again, it's about observation, right? It's about external observation. And so it's actually really, um, it, it's down to the clinicians that you see and their experience and their understanding of, of what the behaviours are when you're looking at them to actually even get that diagnosis in the first place. So um, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting concept that we kind of, we hold labels up to this kind of level where we go, well, this, you know, this means this, and if you don't hit these numbers, or you're not quite you know ticking the boxes then you don't get that label so you're you're just not autistic so you're either autistic or not mm. and that's why I think you know the, the concept of of the spectrum disorder when it came in was was better than probably what we had before in terms of it recognized that there are varying levels and varying you know experiences and that there's actually you know a wide range of behaviors and experiences that people mm. who are neurodiverse will experience right that that you know the way that it will present perhaps um, and so there's, there's been a little bit of work towards recognising that, but I think the medical model is still very much, like we were talking before in terms of the assessment process, oh it's God. all based on deficits. It's all based on yeah. what can't you do, what is, you know, outside the range of normal for development, mm. what is outside the range of normal for, you know, mm. behaviour. Um, mm. And so then we're going to give you this label and then we're going to send you off to some therapies to fix that. Yeah. So it's and very it's all about to... Yes. How do yeah. we fix this yeah. person as opposed to how do we change the systems around them to, mm. to support them? Now, having said that, there are a lot of therapies that people will access where actually the therapists are, you know, teaching and mm. supporting parents and schools a lot of the time. To put in place, yes, yeah. and to put in place these changes that need to happen um, rather than, you know, fixing the child per se. They're often looking at, well, here's the accommodations we can do. Here's some strategies that we can use at school to actually support the child better um, and all of these things. Is there anything can you I want just, to add in terms of the medical model? Before yeah. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, can I just jump in? Because you're yeah. making me think about two really, really. And so um, I was sharing with you, Sammy, just before we jumped on today about a new client that I, that I um, connected with yesterday. And um, she actually used, I love the word she used. And when you were talking about the, now this is where I have issues with this medicalized model as well, which is very much what we're using at the moment to diagnose as such. She used the word pathologized, that we're actually pathologizing or autism or ADHD. We're actually pathologizing. And, and by that token, we're pathologizing behavior. We're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Effectively, we're doing exactly. pathologizing. Pathologizing children. Children yeah, or adults. People. Behavior, right? Mm. Behavior and is not, behavior is not negative or positive. Yeah. Behavior is communication, and so actually saying that these behaviors fall in a you know an area that yeah. that's needs to be fixed or is wrong is actually yeah, yeah. so far yeah. from what's going on that it's yeah. <laughs> so that was I thought that was real when she said that I thought yeah that's it that's the word I've been looking for that that, that we are or society is pathologizing it. 
And the other thing too, um, I'm just trying to remember, there was something else that you said that I wanted to add on and it wasn't about the labelling. I'm just trying to remember because we're talking about, because I was thinking about medicalizing the model and, oh, that's right. Another thing that I often have issue with and in this diagnostic process that we currently use and we accept as the process is that, um, and I'm sure it probably works where you are in Melbourne and Victoria, similarly to how it does here in Canberra, is that often there are people that pretty much only diagnose people, I mean psychologists or specialists that only diagnose autism. Now, what I have issue with there is that they will be meeting a child for the first time. They will not know this child. They will not know their personality or anything. And particularly with children, this is more, probably more difficult than adults because a child's going to be reserved, really reserved when they're meeting a stranger anyway. And a lot of adults would be too. Let's face it, if they were on the neurodiverse and they had anxiety, they probably would be reserved, sorry, reserved too. But what I'm thinking is for a child when we're diagnosing, so stick and the parents aren't in the room with the child, right? The, the parents are not there. So you think about it, you're putting a child in with somebody they've never met ever before. And this person who does not know this child and does not know what they're like at home or what they're like in the classroom or da da da. And that, you know, and they would they would counteract that argument by saying, oh, but we get the parents to fill in questionnaires about what they're like at home and we get the teachers to fill in questionnaires. But that's a questionnaire. You still don't actually know what that little person is like at home or at school. And then you put them in a room with a stranger and you're asking them to solve, you know, I know that as you and I both know the whole process that we go to diagnose autism, there's a lot of looking at spatial, you know, recognition, reasoning, all that sort of stuff. But you're putting them in this unnatural environment and then you're trying to get a diagnosis out of that. And so then... This is, this is the thing that, again, it's this really pathologized, medicalized model. So sometimes either they'll get the diagnosis wrong um, and that, or they'll miss it, um, that the person is neurodiverse because of their kind of like... Well, you know, it, it also doesn't... It, it often... I mean, a, a lot of the problems with the current tools that we have is that it's very difficult to determine if a child is... Hmm. A lot of them yeah. are quite good at working out what is required of them, right? They're quite intuitive. That's right, yes. What do you yeah, want yeah. me to say here? What do you want me to do right mm. now? And that's what I'm going to do, as opposed to just mm. naturally what I would what would I do in my home. Yeah, yeah which, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Where I'm used to actually being, right? And so that causes yeah. a lot of problems. Now, one of the, um, one of the top, I suppose, um, you know, whatever they call bench level, whatever, Top level um, actual tools that they use. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know what I'm trying to say. The one, yeah. the, one of the high level tools that that is, you know, is supposed to be um, really great, and all practitioners mm. should use it. And da da da. But you have to have special special training. Is what they call the mm. ADOS, and the ADOS mm. is effectively a, an assessment tool which utilizes play, and you know, and has the child play with with a set of objects and things like that to work out how they engage and how they interact with those objects. As, mm. a, as a way of determining, you know, is that normal or is that, you know, are they on the spectrum, mm. right? Mm. Um, but the, the trouble there is, like you said, if they're coming into a, an unfamiliar environment, it's often mm. a type environment where it's, you know, mm. it's an office and, and there's... Psychologist there's, rooms or whatever. Yeah. Mm. Um, it can be, you know, the child may not be playing as they normally would. They mm. may not want or like any of the objects in the room and so they will not want mm. to engage with them. It, like it doesn't take personal interest into account. It doesn't take any of that kind of thing into no. account. And there's, there's, you know, as difficult it is as it is to, you know, elicit opinions and experiences from children because they don't, they don't have that um, part of the brain developed yet where they can actually, you know, have really great insight on themselves and all that kind of stuff that, that generally comes mm. later. But there really isn't much of the process that is asking the child how does this feel or how do you feel nah. when or do you know what I mean? So it's very much like you said, you know, the, the, it's, it's the observations of the clinician in an unfamiliar environment and yeah. then it's a checklist questionnaire by the parent and by the mm. teacher, mm. which is based on a set of observable behaviours. Mm. And, and doesn't often, give you many options as a parent also, for answers. Often, often the parent and the teacher don't even know it's coming until the process has started nah. and the clinician is wanting that back within a couple of weeks. So yeah. it's really just a, a snapshot of okay, well, where where am I at right now with this child? So that can be mm. that can be a good week, and it can be going really well. It could be a bad mm. week, and it could go terribly. And that's what you're capturing, as opposed to giving the teacher plenty of notice or the parent plenty of notice that they can start making their own notes and observations mm. over the course of a couple of months or longer, mm. hopefully. 
where they can actually, you know, give, I suppose, a bit, bit more accurate um, grading, mm. I suppose. But even just the fact that we are at the point where we're looking at, you know, that we're looking at that, that we're effectively grading behaviour, I think that's mm. where fundamentally the, the system goes wrong. Mm. And you've hit it on the nail by saying we're grading behaviour because that's what we're doing because even those questionnaires and everything, it's all numbered. We are basically grading the child was whether they're a one or a five and or somewhere in between. Um, so when you think about it, it's quite, in some senses too, it's, it is quite vague, that, yeah. that process as well, because, uh, um, yeah, and that thing and about... And that's why I think that it, it can be so traumatic because it's, it's a source of deep stress and anxiety for the family because they're mm-hmm. going, I don't want to get this wrong. I don't want to reflect them in a way that, that is not true to them mm. and how they're actually experiencing things and also I don't want to like overstate things or understate things and like wh- what is the right answer here what if I haven't mm. observed this particular thing how, how do I answer that you know and so that's where I think a lot of the stress and anxiety can come from too because parents are just just go into this process having no idea what's expected of them. no that's right yeah and that can be where a lot of the trauma comes out because not only are they in this position of effectively supporting the supporting or not supporting the diagnosis of their child mm. depending on their answers to these things but also in, in, in amongst that they're having thoughts of oh is there something wrong with my child what have I done wrong mm. to cause this what you know and they're going through that kind of emotional mm-hmm. trauma and and you know if they don't have an understanding of what actually autism is then generally mm. they're making projections about their child's future and what they won't be able to do and accomplish and all these kinds of things mm. it's a lot it's a lot for a family and then meantime all of the clinicians are just highlighting the negative parts of what's happening mm. as opposed yeah. to you know giving them some strategies or talking them through things that generally that that part generally comes after because the clinician mm. has to get kind of a an idea of where things are at now as opposed to helping things get better they need to know what's happening now so that they can do what they exactly. need to do exactly <sighs> it's hard right yeah, yeah so should we talk about our neurotype model then and the what yeah. the what yeah and um so what there's we a, based on yeah so basically than, i feel like it's a bit of a movement like it's a concept but i feel like it's almost a movement yeah where, I, and it's not everybody i have to say too it's not everybody in the autism community that subscribes to this model either there is still a lot of contention you know if you are autistic yourself and it's not something that i can speak to but i have read about and you know seen a lot about that there is still still some contention among people who are autistic where they will either identify as a disorder and a disability or they will identify as, um, you know, a, a neurotype effectively and, and seeing things in a different way and this kind of thing. Mm. So, um, so there's still a lot of contention, but I suppose we, we subscribe to this model because we recognise how our existing systems and how how we've all really been conditioned to see Mm. this as a disorder we've been conditioned to see it as a deficit and something that we need to improve effectively Mm. um and same thing for adhd right like their name is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder like think of the way that that makes you feel about that yeah that label right yeah and so the reason why we subscribe to this is because i think we're really big believers in you know what, what you foster is what will grow and you know what you, mm. what you support is what will develop and so if we're looking at a child's strengths and a child's interests and what they're really mm. great at and we're making mm. more opportunities for that to occur then you're going to see more of that mm. and the other parts that they find difficult well here's how we can change some things around them to make it and easier them. for them yeah and if there are some skills that they need to develop well here's some ways that we can teach them in a way that will make mm. sense to them and if they're mm. keen to learn that then they will learn that and if they're not they won't but mm. There's, you know, there's ways that we can sort of support growth and development in some areas while also encouraging what they're naturally inclined to. Um, and so I suppose when we look at, when we're talking about neurodiversity, that, that movement or that concept is just recognising that there are different ways of experiencing the world, of, you know, perceiving mm. the world, mm. and there are different ways of interacting with the world. And mm. not one is right or wrong. They just do. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, um, and, you know, it's this, like, and just helping people that, that are watching this, that, so, and this is where this, you know, this word neurotype comes from, that we have neurotypical brains. So neurotypical, uh, really, if you like to look at it, your, st- your standard people, like, yeah, and, and neurodiverse people, uh, we recognise as having divergent brains. And quite often they are the architects, they are the creative ones, they are the engineers, they are the musicians, they are the actors. 
because to be to be creative in that way and to think outside the box you have to have a divergent brain you've got to have a brain that can think differently so being neurodiverse just means that your brain is wired differently so coming back to this thing of the medicalizing pathologizing of it too is that even this is this is something that i think is really important for people to realize is that even um you people that i um that are really you know what we would and i hate terms like high functioning and low functioning so i'm going to say somebody that's further along the spectrum than some others might be. So someone that's nonverbal, for example, okay? So they have difficulty, they can't get the words out. Now they can't get the words out because their executive functioning is impaired and their, um, you know, like processing speed and all that will be really slow and everything. But this myth that they, uh, that they have a disability or that they can't understand what is happening is completely wrong and I think that's something that's really important to get across that even when people are non-verbal and you know people know these the typical behaviors or they'll pinch and they'll bite and they'll kick and all that especially when they're kids and the reason why they're doing that is because they're so frustrated they don't know have any and they haven't been given any other way to get the message out and what we're to finding communicate, now, right like we, yeah, we really yeah. as a neurodiverse society really value speaking and listening and they can't communicate communication tool yeah and that, and then I think second to that is writing and reading. Mm. And but what's if that's not your natural way of communicating, no. it can be really difficult to communicate with anyone yeah. because we're not taught any other way of communicating. Yeah. But I think what's really important is for people to know that these children, these little ones that might be nonverbal and might be in your mainstream classroom with you or might be your child might be verbal and be friends with them and they might be nonverbal. They can understand everything. And this is this is the thing that they might not be able to articulate it, but they can understand it. So that's the, you know, and this is the thing about understanding these neurodivergent brains. And I'm not saying because there are people, yes, that are on the autism spectrum that do have an intellectual disability. And then that intellectual disability may affect the ability to be able to communicate in um you know, in a in a way verbally that is um, that we will understand. But there are people on the spectrum that don't have intellectual impairment that are nonverbal. So it's really, I think it's just so important to realize that this it's so broad, neurodiverse means so much. And that, you know, some of those people that are nonverbal have gone on to be great authors or do, you know, the people that I know that I've read about that I'm yeah. thinking of whether or you know, film documentaries or do all sorts of amazing things and yet they're I, think the step, I think I think the step beyond that too is the fact that you know just because they can't communicate verbally with you doesn't mean they don't have value to give the world mm. it doesn't mean no, that that's, they are somehow less than yeah. because of the yeah. way that they prefer to communicate or the way that they yeah. are able to communicate okay um, and yeah so I think that that really highlights for me the difference between seeing mm. the, you know, the medical deficit as opposed to seeing yeah. The strength and the you know the the ability within what they yeah. can do right um and also just the fact that the medical model makes things different wrong as opposed mm. to just different and okay well we need to learn a different way to interact let's we find you know there's there's definitely some things that we can teach neurodiverse people in order for them to you know better be able to cope and you know communicate with the neurotypical world but mm. also in the same breath there's a lot of things that as a neurotypical person we can do to better ourselves to better understand these people like it is not mm. the onus in the medical model the onus is on the neurodiverse population to change to fit existing systems mm. whereas i think the neurodiverse model really is about us coming together and meeting in the middle and figuring out how can we actually better understand each other and create a world mm. that's really great for all of us mm. not just that's one right. kind of person no no because, you know, the fact that we learn, you know, in, in school, we learn to read and write English and occasionally we'll learn a second language as well, which can mm. be different depending on what school you're at. Mm. Why don't we learn sign language? Mm. Why is that not taught in every school? Like when mm. we're starting early childhood education, there are a lot of, there are a lot of daycare centres that are, that are starting to pick up on this and a lot of kindergartens that are starting to pick up mm. on teaching sign language at the same time as you mm. know, reading, writing, speaking, early literacy skills. Mm. And that needs to continue on into schools. I, it just boggles my mind that we're not taught how to, how to sign because yeah. there's a whole population of people in this country. And that's yeah. not, that's, that's, you know, that can be deaf people, people who are classified as deaf, but it's also 
can be nonverbal people who yeah. are diverse. Yeah. That we could actually effectively communicate with them if we all understood how to sign. Sign. Yeah. Like that's a massive that's a uh, massive area that and that's yeah. you know to me that's a fairly simple fix because we already have second language streams in schools mm. so make a second language stream that is mm. sign language yeah make and just make know, it compulsory in the classroom have yeah have have, yeah. have, have verbal we have you know we have verbal yeah. instructions we often now schools are starting to bring in visual instructions too which is really mm. important also have it signed also have mm. makaton symbols also have mm. You know, there's so there's so many. It's like in countries like where they teach in two languages. Like for for example, in India, English is well, they do have two official languages, and Hindi is one, and English is the other. So in every school, you learn Hindi and English. Yes. yes. So why yes. in every school can't we be learning and the whatever? Best our time, the signing? best time to learn additional languages mm. is when you're young. Is that mm. eight year? age range yeah. because that's yeah. what the brain is the most open to various forms of communication yeah and and we see it a lot with english as a second language families where they will come to school and often they will be talking late and reading late in english but that's because they're learning two languages at the same time so yeah it might take an, a little bit longer for them yeah. to get the hang of which yeah. language is which but once they've got it they're bilingual yeah, yeah. what every child is capable of that yeah every child is capable yeah. of that and we just yeah. we just need to be teaching it more so yeah you know yeah it's things like that where it's like if we if we can shift our thinking and and move society towards this idea that you know everybody is worthwhile just because they are it doesn't matter mm. what they can and can't do it doesn't matter what they mm. like to do and what they don't like to do everybody has value to offer mm. and so how can we actually create a society which makes sure that everybody gets a chance and this is equity what mm. we're talking about right this is equity not equality i think we're past the discussion about equality equality yeah. was making sure that everybody had access to the same thing and playing field yeah. and we we have that on paper but now yeah. we're at the point where it's like just because they can access it doesn't mean they can because we haven't mm. actually made any adjustments to how that is presented mm. to how that mm. is you know offered to them to you know mm. and this goes this this is not just a discussion for neurodiverse populations right this is a discussion for race for you know sexuality for mm. um even you know uh, low socioeconomic families and things yes, like that like what they have access to yeah. is is you know is not the same as really making it available and supporting no. them to access it right no so no. yeah so a lot of what we talk about in terms of accommodations and things in the medical model it's you know this child needs these accommodations because there's something wrong with them mm, but, mm. But model, it's like these accommodations will support these child and also they're great for everyone so can we just yeah. do it all the bloody time yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah why yeah. are we not doing this all the time yeah. which then moves really well into our next subject which is going to be we were talking about you know changing the child <laughs> versus changing the, the system or yeah. the symptoms, you know. Yeah. So, this so that's, I think that's so. really how we can sum up the two, you know, opposing viewpoints that mm. the medical model is we need to change the child, we need to fix the child mm. and or the person. And the, you know, the neurodiverse model, the neurotype model is that, no, we need to actually change the system so that everyone has yeah. the ability and to interact with other people and, you know, and get, you know, get along in the world. And not just the system, but also to people realizing that we need to change things like the sensory environment. So we need to change the noise levels in classrooms. We need to change maybe some of the materials in that if, that we're using in classrooms as an, I mean, like physical materials like chairs we're sitting on, carpets we're sitting on, because if people have um, certain sensory issues with certain uh, fabrics or textures make their skin crawl or tingle, they're the sorts of things. They're, they're the sorts of things that we that we need to be looking at, and it's you know, if you want the this is the thing. This is about you know talking about adaptive behavior and things like that. If you want the child child to change their behavior, has to fundamentally change because they're going to have to change what is what what their natural reaction has been because you're trying to say to them because this is the thing you're saying to them no that's actually wrong and you're meant to react like this mm. whereas if you're working with the symptom or what's the symptom system and what's around them then you're actually accommodating their needs but those it can be something so small like the yes you know like if, you know if jack has um is neurodiverse and he sits um 
you know, near the window and he has dyslexia that sits with that neurodiversity and the glare from the window stops him being able to focus. Well, all you have to do is move Jack away from the window into another part of the room. You know, uh, it can be just simple things like that. And something I was just popped in my head then is when we're talking about what is neurodiversity too, that's the other thing too I think we need to cover today is that it's not just, we're not just talking about autism. So we're talking about ADHD and autism, which we now say sit together under one um, umbrella uh, spectrum, if you like, because yeah. I don't like to use the word, um, um, yeah, yeah, the, the one spectrum that you like. And I think it's good too for people to know the reason why they call it a spectrum is because it's like a rainbow and a rainbow has a spectrum which is a whole range of different colours, which is why they talk about the autistic spectrum. And no one colour is better than the other. Than the other, yeah. Um, but, yeah, but sorry, to go back to what I was saying about neurodiversity was that so ADHD and autism, we now now sit together, but then there are all of these other um, um, Neurotypes, yeah, yeah, comorbidities, which is another word that I hate that sit with it. So you can have dyslexia, dyspraxia, dysgraphia, all of them, and they tend to feed back into the autism and ADHD, mm. and they can sit on their own. Mm. Absolutely, they can sit on their own, or mm. they can be within and sit within the person having autism and, and ADHD. So, but those people, so people that are dyslexic and neurodiverse as well, because they have they often will have very uh, brains that really, really can think outside the box and think quite differently. So whilst they may struggle with reading or some people with dyslexia really struggle with maths, that, that where that is then, um, uh, where then the difference is, is they could be really creative or really artistic, like off the scale. But, but again, because, because and, and again, because we've structured our education system around you know, these core pillars, you have to be able to read and write. You have to be able to speak mm. and communicate. Arithmetic. You have to be able to do maths. Reading and writing, Like yeah. everything else outside of that is like, oh, here's some fun stuff to do. This doesn't really matter. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. that is just, it's just, I mean, we're, can't we be past that, please? Like surely we recognise the value, especially after we've gone through COVID, right? Surely we recognise mm. the value of artists and creatives and people who can mm. think differently, people who can view a situation and have a different perspective to bring to it. But mm. the systems that we have effectively are either shutting those down, you know, oppressing the people that are trying mm. to do that mm. and, and really preventing a lot of people from being able to access that part of themselves because they're so busy just trying to fit in. They're so busy just trying mm. to do what's mm. expected of them. And then they internalise things like, oh, well, I'm dumb or I'm, you know, I'm misbehaved. I'm the naughty kid. I'm, you know, they internalize all of these things that not, it, it, it doesn't even necessarily need to be something that someone has said. It often is things that they've heard people say about them, but that doesn't need to be something they've said because they just get that feeling from the way that they're treated within the systems, that the fact that they have to sit on their own and, and do this thing for, you know, when they have to get kept back at lunchtime because they've, you know, behaved a certain way in class mm. or um, the grades that they get because we're still grading our kids on, you know, on their yeah. academics. Like yeah. all of these things feed into, you know, their, their identity. And if they're identifying as, you know, somebody who can't cope with the way things are, then mm. it has a really detrimental effect on their own mental health, on their own, you know, sense of self effectively. Mm. And I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, I read a lot of um, neurodiverse voices around saying that, you know, I, I, I identify as autistic because that mm. gives me a, you know, a positive outlook on the way that I experience life mm. in general mm. and actually mm. reminding myself that this is not wrong because I've been told all my life it's wrong. Actually, mm. this is just how I am. And mm. everyone else needs to get used to that. I don't need to change that. Mm. Yeah. And I'm experiencing the world in a different way. And my sensory input is different. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's wrong. Like, for example, there could be somebody who's um, neurodiverse who has sensory issues who might not be able to wear this top because it's synthetic and they might have to wear cotton or, the, you know, really, really little things like that, which, you know, are really quick fixes. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. It just means that they're experiencing the feeling of that fabric on their skin differently to how I experience it. Exactly. You know, and exactly. I actually was reading some, something about that the other day where they talk about that, like how in families inadvertently 
siblings or parents or whatever will like tease you for some of those um, sensory issues that you have, not me, not actually realizing that it actually is a sensory issue. Mm. Um, yeah. Cause it can be, you know, certain things like certain sounds can really send, like make people feel really queasy and things like that. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like, I mean, I can give some examples in terms of I'm not neurodiverse. So this is not a, this is just an example to give people an idea mm that you know like often my friends and family will tease me about the fact that I have to have even numbers like the the volume always has to be an even number I cannot have it it cannot be an odd number unless it's a five five is okay but I like if I'm changing the volume like often yeah. if he is changing the volume he'll purposely put it on an odd number so that I will have to go and get the remote and change it because it's like for some reason there's something that's has to be what I'm little or whatever yeah it's got to be like 20 or 22 it can't be 21 it's got to be oh little things like that and it's like they'll tease me about that but that's cool because that's just that's just a little quirk that I've got right it's but if we're teasing someone about something that they and like yeah. to, be, to be fair if it was on 21 I'm not going to die and I know that I'm not going to die so I'm not having that kind of you know yeah like like bodily reaction that yeah. that often people who are actually suffering can experience yeah. right so yeah. you know so there's a difference between teasing me for that little quirk because I recognize right. that that's a quirk and that's just something weird about me and cool I totally own that but <laughs> if you're teasing someone because or if you you know if you're picking on them for you know a way that they're interacting because actually physically they cannot help with that reaction no it's like they're going oh yeah because we even when they're having that physical reaction in their brain they're going oh like I hate that I'm reacting like this right it's mm-hmm. like, yeah they know someone, yeah. it's like telling someone you know you have brown hair it's like thanks I recognize that I have brown hair yeah yeah i can see myself like i know that i'm doing that so when you're pointing out things sometimes yeah thank you captain yeah. i recognize that that's happening for me but also do you oh, recognize captain. what's happening in here because yeah. that's effectively you're showing your you know your ignorance aren't you yeah you actually have no idea what's happening for that person internally by no no so there's different ways no. to approach it right like if you if you're genuinely not sure why someone's reacting in a way you could probably ask them Awesome. Yeah. Okay. What's what? causing this for you? Like I did this and you did that. Like what happened there? Like, is that, you know, like, or, or you yeah. know, is there something I can do to help you with this? Like, is this, a, yeah. you know, is this something that I can approach differently so that it doesn't set you off or it doesn't, you know, impact mm. you or, or whatever. Like, I think there's just so much we've been, this, we've been yeah. taught to disconnect from ourselves. And so therefore yeah. we've been taught to really disconnect from each other. And, and it becomes, a, you know, we, we, therefore just identify by all of our various labels which is mm. I think why um sometimes the label can be dangerous so mm. I think that it's 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 probably a good you know a good thing to swing into that that discussion about do we actually need a label like there's so many yeah. people that I will work with that will actually say do I have to go and get a diagnosis like yeah. I recognize that the school's saying these things and then here's some things I'm experiencing at home and you know, and I see, and I've done a little bit of research and I recognize that there are some signs and symptoms there that, okay, maybe that might mean something, but I don't, I don't want to give my child a label. Like, do no. I, do I need it? Do I have to do it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a big common question, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. And, you know, I think we said, like, I'm looking at what we wrote down here too. It depends. It does depend what you want a label for. So part of getting a label can be playing the game which is, you know, like to get certain supports in class and particularly at school and in the classroom, sometimes we need those labels because the schools need that label to get the funding. So that is something that is critical um, and that you might have to get a diagnosis. However, if you're already, and this is where it's, it's tricky in the sense that if you already are identifying as neurodiverse and you already know that you're neurodiverse and you recognize it for yourself you might not need the label and some people do need the. this is the other thing too some people do need the label for them just because it's like almost like a confirmation or a relief that oh okay that's what it is so i'm not weird or anything i'm just neurodiverse yeah you know? and so i think the, the 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 benefits in some term in some ways of the label is the fact that it actually provides oh excuse me it actually provides yeah. an explanation sometimes like yeah oh, that's why i'm feeling this way oh that's why i've you know experienced this that and the other that's why i've been labeled as this way when actually here's what was happening for me um mm. so yeah so for a lot of people and i think 
the movement of, of neurodiversity as well is actually creating an identity from the label that's separate from the medical model that's actually that's not right. autistic. And so therefore, here's some things that I experience. Um, and, and it almost gives you a, a, a sense of belonging because we're all looking for that, right? We're all looking for that sense of belonging, that sense of connection. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, what you, what you touch on there is, is really important to recognise that sometimes some people just want that as confirmation of what they already know because they, mm. they almost want the, you know, the permission to identify mm. that way. Yeah. And so actually yeah, there's, a lot, like, there's a lot of people in the, I suppose, in the neurodiverse movement who will recognise, you know, um, like self-diagnosis as a really valid yeah. diagnosis because so often it's women because so often girls get missed because yes. the system that we have was built upon research around boys, mm. not, not women, not girls. Mm. Um, so... So that can have a really big impact on it as well, because sometimes you're thinking, oh, like I relate to some of this, but not that. So it's like, can I call, yeah. call myself that? Because I don't really know. And yeah. so then sometimes actually the formal process just gives them that confirmation of actually, yes, I am. And yeah. So yes, I can, I can own that label. I can say that that's my experience. I'm, I'm not downplaying the fact that I can mask really well. I'm not downplaying the fact that I can actually get along really well in life because there are some difficulties that I'm having and here's why. Um, so yeah, so I think it definitely can have benefits in that way. And like you said, it, it is part of that's the system we have right now. That's the system we're operating under. Yeah. And so in order to take advantage of the supports that are available, then we do have to go through do that process. Need diagnose. Yeah. But it is a choice still. I think a lot of people yeah. feel like once the teacher says, go and do this and their GP and their pediatrician says, yeah, you need to go and do this. They just say, yes, sir. And I better listen to them because they know what they're talking about. Mm. Whereas actually it, it, it is all a choice. It is all an mm. option as to whether you follow that path or not, as to whether mm. you want to, you know, play that game and and you know mm. some funding and do some things within that mm. world or whether you want to go you know what I know who I am mm. I know that this is me and I know this is who my child is and this is how they're operating right now but actually I don't mm. need any of that we're going to do our thing over here and we're just going to mm. we're going to be just fine so you know what it reminds me of it's like sides. you don't you don't go off to get a diagnosis to tell you that you're heterosexual or homosexual <laughs> right you just yes. know don't you you just know so, so yes. you just and I'm sure people know whether they're you know neurodiverse or not yeah. they went and looked up the checklists and things yep. like you know so really the only and you know if you needed to go and get a diagnosis to say that you were homosexual to get funding well, I, I then feel like you it, probably would I feel go like and it do used it. to be I feel like it used to be in I don't know if it was in the DSM or if it was the thing before that but like homosexuality used to be a disease like it was a medical model, yeah, 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 model no, no, at no, one stage right no, that's the thing. And we're treating autism like it's a yeah. disease. And this is because yeah. when you were talking earlier, just a few minutes ago about that, you know what I was thinking of? Because you know, there is an autistic pride movement, very similar to the gay pride movement, yes. which does fit in well too, because the gay pride movement also has those rainbow colors because there is such a spectrum in yes. being, you know, in yes. the LGBTQI community, well, massive gender, spectrum. Gender, gender and sexuality. Is fluid is a, yeah. is a spectrum yeah yeah, yeah. and the yeah. same thing in neurodiversity there's this massive spectrum right so and and i think that that's where that's what that's what we've touched on here today is that there is this massive spectrum so if you and you know some families are really struggling and they're wanting to get their kids as much help as possible and help them and so they need the NDIS funding to be able to supplement that financially so that might be the you know so I'm not saying that I'm not invalidating anybody that gets a label you know and even like for me as you you know I'm very open about the fact that I have ADHD and I got my diagnosis two years ago and when I got that diagnosis and I went through the diagnostic process because to get that label to me was important because it actually made me then understand more about the way that I am. Mm. So, you know, we're, you know, so, but. It um, feels less like guessing, doesn't it? When you have that yeah. sort of piece of paper, you go, yeah. okay, when I read these things, I can see how that applies to me. And it's, yeah. still, you're still going to go, that's me and that's not me because there's such yeah. a wide range. That's of spectrum. Things, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah, and then everyone's sensory issues are different. Everybody's sensory system is affected differently and everything. So. But it, you know, it almost but gives you it almost gives you permission to be more compassionate with yourself, right? Yeah. Like, there is a reason that I'm struggling. I'm not just somehow like worse at this than everyone else seems to be around me. Yeah. No, actually, 
my brain is wired differently. There's this happening right. here. There's like this input going on that I'm, you know, working through. And yeah. actually I don't, I don't need to feel guilty about that. That's how my brain is. Mm. So therefore I'm going to, I'm going to work with it. I'm going to use what I've got. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll follow what I feel called to do and, and, you know, what I'm interested in doing. But also it, I think it gives you more power to just to be in that and go, okay, well, this is how I am, right? Exactly. Would yeah. change that? No, 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 no. And you know, yeah. And I think it's really important just for people to know that they don't need the label if they don't want to go down, you know, that path. Mm. And that if they can, they self-identify that that's mm. completely fine. And again, like if they do, I think one of the best things you can do is to find out what's involved in the process. Is to is yeah. to, to research it. Sometimes there's a lot to wade through. So if it feels really overwhelming, contact one of us because we absolutely, you know, we know that process pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have found yes. Yeah. 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 And because I think yeah. when you know, when you know what's coming, when you know before the doctor says what the doctor's going to say, mm. you become in the position of power. Whereas I really yeah. think we give away a lot of our power to to authority. We're, we're taught, we're conditioned that way from yeah. a very, very young age that, you know, you you respect your parents you, you do what the doctor tells you you do what the teacher tells you like you, we're really conditioned to just do as we're told mm. and so when we come into this process where a doctor's telling you here's here's what's wrong a doctor's telling you you know you need to go and do this like we've we feel very pulled from here to there and going okay i'll do that oh, okay do that and that's how it can feel mm. overwhelming whereas if we know starting mind. out right i'm going to go to the gp and i'm going to ask them to refer me to this pediatrician because i've had recommendations for this pediatrician yeah. when i get to that pediatrician i'm already have have my psychology appointments booked and my speech appointments booked because i know who i want to see and i'm going to say here's where we're going like mm. you, you really are approaching that whole process in a really different way. Right. And for me, I really recognize the parent as the expert. What the parent is doing is, is hearing mm. advice from experts in their field on a particular thing. Mm. And we're going to go and find some information out from the pediatrician that we might not have known mm. before. We're going to go and find some information out from the psychologist and the speechy and the OT and whoever else we, we come into contact with along mm. the way. But all the while knowing that we know our child best and then mm. child knows themselves the best of all yeah and actually we're going to start there and we're going to recognize that and we're going to go okay for my child this is what works and okay cool this is this is not working i recognize that this is not working right now so i need some other ideas professionals yes. give me your ideas and i'm going yes. to work out what actually i'm going to follow yeah and we pinpoint what you need what you don't need what you yeah and what your family needs and your family makeup is and picking what's right because yes. i think that's the thing too parents remember you have the power yes so you have the ones to pick, you have the power to pick what therapies you want your child to go to if you want them to go to any at all and who are the best therapists for them, was the best school for them, whether they're better off being mainstream schooled, going to a special needs school or being homeschooled. Mm. You have the power, it's your power. And I think that's, that's a big part of this process too. It's very disempowering for parents. Yes. It's yes. not an empowering process. It's a yes. disempowering process. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, really supporting parents to take that power back and recognising mm. themselves as the expert. Mm. But I think also coaching and encouraging and, and teaching our parents how to share that power with their child. Mm. It's going to be, it, it, you know, there's going to be instances where, yes, the parent has to take the lead because they have more experience, they can see further ahead than the child, whatever the case may be. But there are also a lot of times where the child can make that decision and actually the parent mm. can listen to the child it's just that we're taught that parents make the decisions for the child like mm. we're conditioned to believe that as a parent we must do this this and this and mm. guide our child and do this and that but actually if we give our child the choice of direction if we if we go back to our child and say do you want to go to school or do you want to homeschool like that That's should good. be a massive part of the decision you yeah know, do you, would you like a label would you not like a label as long as they're at the the age where they can communicate that with yeah, you yeah 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 Asking them the question is really, really important part of the process and really trying to share that power back because so much of, you know, of our neurodiverse population mm. is also taken away a lot of the mm. time. And so mm. actually working out how can we give them some power and choice back, I think is really important. Mm. because we've, we've really been conditioned to not trust children. We've been conditioned yeah. that like they're a blank slate. Oh, they're we they're must mean... fill their heads with everything. Yeah. So far from the truth that that's actually, true if we that's really true. the world i reckon the world would be a whole lot better place yeah no i agree and it's this whole thing that then when you well this is another thing which i won't go into today because that would be another hour but that, <laughs> maybe that's next children week behave to get a me children behave to get a need met they don't yeah. actually misbehave and they're not actually being yes. manipulative 
They're yes. behaving to their need met. Yes. You know? Yes. And they are so clearly tuned in with what their needs are, mm. where they want to go and their desires that actually we could learn a lot from them mm. and actually reconnecting to that for them for ourselves and so then allowing them to have more of that. Mm. Because if you allow them to have more of that, well, then you're not going to see so much overwhelm because they're already going to be doing what they really want to be doing, right? Like it's hard, it's hard to be really, you know, angry with the world if if you're comfortable and, and, you, have, yeah. and you know, doing something you really love doing. Like it's hard mm. to be angry in that state, right? The anger and the yeah. frustration and the, you know, the sadness and anxiety and all that stuff comes. Things are not congruent with how you are yeah. inside, right? Yeah. And yeah. I think it's actually just a little note in terms of NDIS we touched on a little bit there. I think it's important for parents to also know that they don't just have to be told, like they don't have to do the NDIS run thing, right? They have the option yeah. of having control of that NDIS plan and actually, you know, being in charge of that so that, that yeah, they have more control over where they go and how the funding is used and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's an important point to note as well that, you know, if they, if they want to do it and they feel like they don't know enough, there, there are ways to learn it and there are ways to be supported yeah. in that without actually just giving all the power to the, the department that says you go here and you do this, you know? Mm. So, yeah, that's another important point too. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Thank you, everyone. And um, Thank you. we'll see you same time, same place next week. Thank you for listening into Nurturing Neurodiversity. With me, Patricia Falchetta from Social Living Solutions. And me, Sammy Ann from Map the Maze. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe through your favourite podcast platform. To continue the conversation, come in and find us on our socials. You can find me on Facebook at Sammy Ann Map the Maze or check out my website www.sammyann.com. And you can find me on Facebook too, on Social Living Solutions, or also on my personal page, Patricia Falchetta. You can also find me on Insta at Patricia Falchetta, or my website, which is www.sociallivingsolutions.com.au. All the links to find us are in the description, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Where we'll continue to learn how to create a truly inclusive world for us and for our children.